0: Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 10. Last week, I covered various theories on who actually wrote the Book of Exodus, from the traditional view that it was written down by Moses, to the more current alternate theories. If you missed that episode, you should go back and give it a listen. So, it's finally time for me to tackle what is known about the history of Egypt, which is really a gargantuan task. There is far too much information to sift it down to a podcast subject, especially for a series that's not about the history of Egypt itself. But, it's part of the history of the Christian religion, so cover it, I will. The way I've chosen to tackle the subject will be as follows. First, I'll cover the Egyptians as found in the Old Testament. The next episode will be a survey from the prehistory of that region through about 50 B.C. Why have I chosen to only cover the Egyptians in the Old Testament, at least for now? I'll get to that in a minute. But, this specific episode is really about setting the stage for the next several. In those, I'll cover the chronological history, diving into each era and dynasty, to the depth that I deem appropriate. Right now, I really don't know where each episode will end, but each should be about 25 to 30 minutes. After I cover up to about 50 BC, I'll circle back and tie it all together. And please be patient. The history of the Egyptians encompasses one of the two empires, the other being the Romans, that really set the stage for how the Christian religion would develop. The Egyptians with a huge influence on the Old Testament, and the Romans with the New. And with that, let's get started. Since this is a podcast about the intersection of the history of Christianity and the history of the world, I'll need to first ground the Egyptians with where they are found in the Bible, and in this case, the Old Testament. Like most civilizations of the region, they are first mentioned in the Table of Nations, found in Genesis chapter 10, specifically in verses 6 and 13. And, like most of the others, this mention is merely aligning them with the other cultures. In their case, in verse 6, they were listed as a descendant of Ham, along and beside Cush, Put, and Canaan. Verses 13 and 14 then list the descendants of Egypt, specifically that Egypt became the father of Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, Casluhim, and Caphtorim from which the Philistines come. And, as you can surmise from the context of the passage, in this case, Egypt was not a culture, but a single man. The text of Genesis, in the case of Egypt, is quiet for only two chapters after the Table of Nations. In chapter 12, we are told that Abraham and Sarai journeyed to the region in order to escape a famine in Canaan. Foreshadowing. This is one of the three instances in the book of Genesis where a patriarch attempted to pass his wife off as his sister. It was in the next chapter that Abraham and Sarai depart Egypt for the Negev desert. In chapter 15 God makes a covenant with Abraham where he promises to give his descendants the territory from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, and a whole lot of other places. Then, We learn in chapter 16 that Hagar, Sarai's slave who would become Abram's wife and the mother of Ishmael, well, Hagar was from Egypt. And while I'm on the subject of Ishmael, in chapter 21, the narrative tells of how Hagar found a wife for her son, and that wife was also from Egypt. Already, and well before Joseph, we see how the cultures of the region were so very intertwined. Chapter 26 tells us of another famine in Canaan, this one impacting Isaac. Apparently, God was worried that Isaac would do as his father Abraham had done and migrate to Egypt. So, God instructed the young man to forego the journey and settle in Gerar instead. And Isaac did. Of course, the most significant mention of Egypt in the Old Testament comes when Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers to traders heading to Egypt. And this sets up some 400 years of the Israelites living, prospering, and then being enslaved by the Egyptians. The book of Genesis ends with the initial portion of this migration and settlement. And pretty much the first half of the book of Exodus concerns Moses attempting to, then freeing the Israelites from, their Egyptian bondage. Then, of course, they flee the pursuing Egyptian army, crossing the Red Sea, or the Sea of Reeds, and finally arriving at Sinai. In the remainder of the Pentateuch, well, really most of the Old Testament, mentions of Egypt are only for reference. They usually consist of God reminding the people that he brought them out of slavery in that land, or it is used to mark calendar dates, such as in the book of Numbers chapter 1 where it reads, The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, on the first day of the second month, in the second year, after they had come out of the land of Egypt. Now, there are a few more interesting and novel mentions embedded in the Pentateuch, such as in Numbers chapter 11 that reads, We remember the fish we used to eat in Egypt for nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Which, of course, gives us some insight into the crops of that region and era. We see other products in Psalms chapter 68, where there is a mention of Egyptian bronze, and also in Proverbs chapter 7 with Egyptian linen, a product revered for its quality to this day. There is a historical factoid in Numbers 13, where we are told that Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Zoan is believed to have been a city in Egypt on the eastern side of the Nile Delta. Then, in Numbers chapter 34, God tells Moses that the southwestern boundary of their territory, when they finally settle in Canaan, will be at the Wadi of Egypt. We are told of the same boundary in the book of Joshua. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, God told the Israelites that they are not to abhor any of the Egyptians, because at one time they were aliens residing in their land. In fact, the children of Egyptians' third generation that are born to them may be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. The next non-referential mention of Egypt was not until 1 Samuel in chapter 30, when David, while fighting the Amalekites captures an Egyptian who was a slave to his foes. David convinces the unnamed slave to reveal the location of the Amalekites so that he could later attack them. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, we're told of how Benaiah killed a handsome Egyptian warrior. The same story is told in more detail in 1 Chronicles chapter 11, where we learn that the Egyptian was a man of great stature, five cubits tall. The Egyptian had in his hand a spear like a weaver's beam. But Benaiah went against him with a staff, snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. As a refresher, a cubit is a measure of length, equating to about one and a half feet, or half a meter. So, this Egyptian would have been about seven and a half feet or two and a half meters tall. In 1 Kings chapter 3, the text tells us of how Solomon married a daughter of the Egyptian pharaoh. 1 Kings chapter 9 reads that the pharaoh king of Egypt had captured Gezer and burned it down, killed the Canaanites who lived in the city, and had given it as a dowry to his daughter when she married Solomon. Now Solomon, since the city was now in his territory, has it rebuilt. Also in that book, in chapter 4, the text speaks of how Solomon's wisdom even exceeded that of the whole of Egypt. Later in First Kings, a story that was repeated in Second Chronicles chapter 1, we're given a glimpse into how Solomon attained some of his wealth. He ran an arms trading business. Specifically, Solomon's imports of horses was from Egypt and Kew and the king's traders received them from Q at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for six hundred shekels of silver, and a horse for one hundred and fifty. So, through the king's traders they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Aram. And that's a quote. Q would later be known as Tarsus, located in what is today Turkey. In a quick sidebar, I covered shekels a bit when talking about the Tabernacle a few episodes ago. But as a reminder, a shekel was not a definite weight and depended on the time and place. As best as we know it today, it was somewhere between 0.18 and 0.45 of a troy ounce, which would place it between 5 and 14 grams. Silver is currently just over $17 U.S. per troy ounce, are 55 US cents per ground. So, the value of a chariot would be between 1,839 and 4,600 US dollars, and a horse between 460 and 1,149 US dollars, all depending on the actual measurement of the shekel. And you knew some of that from a previous episode, but this part is new. The term shekel originated from the harvest. It was actually a coin, but not in the sense we think of it, more like a token, at least when the word was first used, and the token represented a claim on a weight of grain held in the city storehouse. The word itself is Sumerian, as in from the kingdom of Sumer. The word is a combination of the words shi, which meant wheat, and kel, which was a measurement similar to a bushel. Hence, this token was a symbol of a value of one bushel of wheat. I'm adding shekels to the list of topics to cover later. But for now, back to the Egyptians, as found in the Old Testament. The presentation of Egypt takes a bit of a turn in 1 Kings chapter 11. It is here that we begin to see the nature of the relationship between Israel and Egypt. And spoiler, it seems that they weren't exactly friendly towards each other. Previously, David had fought the Edomites, killing what he thought was every male, but a fellow named Hadad escaped, gaining refuge in Egypt. In fact, he was given housing and an allowance from the unnamed Pharaoh. A similar circumstance can be found towards the end of the chapter when Solomon sought to kill the rebellious Jeroboam, who also fled to Egypt. And, this time, he was granted refuge by King Shoshak of Egypt, and remained in Egypt until the death of Solomon. And a bit of a teaser about this Egyptian king, who I will cover in more depth when I get to that point in their history. Among the first deciphered Egyptian hieroglyphs were the carvings that identified Shoshak as one and the same as Shoshak I. This identification remains the most accepted theory to this day. The writings detail a military campaign into Canaan, specifically into places identified as the Negev Desert and Galilee. Hold on to that thought just for a minute while I return to the Old Testament. In 1 Kings chapter 12, Jeroboam returns from Egypt when he learns that Rehoboam is to be made king after the death of Solomon. Five years later, and as seen two chapters later, In 1 Kings chapter 14, and this is a quote, King Shushak of Egypt came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took everything. He also took away all the shields of gold that Solomon had made. So King Rehoboam made shields of bronze instead and committed them to the hands of the officers of the guard who kept the door of the king's house. As often as the king went into the house of the Lord, the guard carried them and brought them back to the guard room. Quote. The same story in Second Chronicles tells us that the Egyptian army was supported by 1,200 chariots and 60,000 cavalry troops. And this is one of many, many times where two independent sources tell much of the same story: the Egyptian hieroglyphs and the Book of First Kings. Historians use the phrase, multiple independent attestations. I'll shorten that to one word, credibility. The text goes quiet until 2 Kings chapter 7, where we see that the Arameans were tricked into believing that the king of Israel had hired the Egyptian army to fight against them. So, this really isn't a historical reference, except that it points out the Egyptian force was so feared that the mere belief that they were approaching terrorized the Arameans to the point that they abandoned their tents, horses, donkeys, silver, gold, and clothing. And once again, the text goes quiet, this time for ten chapters. In 2 Kings chapter 17, we see that the Assyrians and the Egyptians were enemies. In this case, King Shalmaneser of Assyria imprisoned Hoshea. This was after Hoshea failed to pay the Assyrian king a tribute, while at the same time corresponding with King So of Egypt. Unfortunately, unlike King Shashak, the identity of King So is a bit less clear. An older theory is that he was King Tefnict of the 24th dynasty. But this theory has been modernly discarded in favor of the IV of the 22nd dynasty. This proposal is primarily due to Hoshea and Ozirakin, reigning at about the same time, specifically in the case of the Egyptian ruler between 730 and 715 BC. Some researchers believe that the biblical reference may be to a more minor Egyptian, such as Seba, who was a commander mentioned in a separate Assyrian artifact. In 2 Kings chapter 18, we see that the Israelites remained both politically and geographically between the Assyrians and the Egyptians. And like is true today, being in the middle of two great empires is neither comfortable nor safe. The next time we find the Egyptians in the narrative is in the same book in chapter 23. Actually, the account of this is also found in more detail in 2 Chronicles chapter 35. In these passages, we see that the king of Judah, Josiah, was killed by an Egyptian identified as Pharaoh Necho at a location known as Migadu. It was here that Josiah was either fatally wounded or actually died. Either way, the narrative reasserts that the Assyrians and the Egyptians were still not getting along and the Israelites were still caught in the middle. And, as for Pharaoh Necho, He is considered the same as Necho II, slightly different spelling, who was part of the 26th dynasty and reigned between 610 and 595 BC. With Josiah's death, the Israelite people made Josiah's son, Jehoazah, king. But Pharaoh had him removed and taken to Egypt. In his place, the Pharaoh designated another of Josiah's sons, one named Jehoiakim, made king. He also imposed a tribute of silver and gold. Sometime afterwards, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon drove the Egyptians out of the territory. And as it reads in the first part of 2 Kings chapter 24, the king of Egypt did not come again out of his land, for the king of Babylon had taken over all that belonged to the king of Egypt, from the Wadi of Egypt to the river Euphrates. Essentially the land designated by God for the Israelites so many generations before. Egypt then returned to its prior status as a place where people would seek refuge from whoever the external ruler de Jor was in Israel. Keep this in mind when we get to the very first part of the New Testament. In Isaiah chapter 19, the first two-thirds of the chapter is a prophecy concerning the fate of the Egyptians. Their fate is best summarized in the last bit of the chapter, which reads, The Egyptians will be like women, and tremble with fear before the hand that the Lord of hosts raises against them. And the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the plan that the Lord of hosts is planning against them. Quote. But that isn't the end of the Egyptians. The end of the chapter reads, On that day there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the city of the sun. A few verses later, we're told that when the Egyptians cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and will defend and deliver them. Quote. And the chapter essentially ends with, the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their supplications and heal them. On that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian will come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians." Quote. Allusions to this prophecy are also seen in the remainder of the book of Isaiah. Culminating with Isaiah writing, the wealth of Egypt and all the merchandise of Ethiopia, and the Sabians, tall of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will make supplication to you, saying, God is with you alone, and there is no other. There is no God besides him." End quote. The book of Jeremiah shows that Egypt was once again not exactly aligned with Israel. In chapter 26, Uriah, due to his condemning prophecy, made King Jehoiakim angry, and Uriah fled to what he thought was safety in Egypt. But King Jehoiakim sent his men after him and actually captured him in Egypt. Then he was brought back to Israel and executed. Later in Jeremiah, in chapter 42, the prophet warns the people about migrating to Egypt, warning that their fate, if they choose to do so, will be worse than that faced in the beginning of Exodus. But the high priest of the temple, Johanan, refused to listen to Jeremiah and fled to Egypt trying to escape the Babylonians, and he took the prophet Jeremiah with him. Of course, Jeremiah wasn't happy with this and spent a good portion of his book cursing the Egyptians as well as the Judeans who fled there. And more specifically, he says that God will give Pharaoh Hophra, the king of Egypt, into the hand of his enemies. Like the other pharaohs named in the Old Testament, archaeologists think that they know who this reference refers to. In this case, Hophra is thought to be the same person as Apries, the fourth king of the 26th dynasty, who reigned between 589 and 570 BC. It is commonly believed that Jeremiah ended up dying in Egypt. Later, the prophet Ezekiel picked up where Jeremiah left off and hurled more insults and ominous prophecies at Egypt. And even later in the Old Testament, Hosea and Joel also made similar prophecies, which pretty much wraps up the mentions of Egypt in the Old Testament, and still leaves us in the BC part of world history. Of course, Egypt merits mentions after the birth of Christ, when Joseph, Mary, and the young Savior fled there to escape persecution, carrying on a centuries-old tradition. But I'm going to save that portion of the history of the Egyptians for when I get to that part of the Bible. And that's just as good of a place as any to end this episode. Join me next week when I'll summarize the history of the Egyptians from their prehistory up to about the year 50 BC. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, please go to iTunes, or wherever you receive the podcast from, and leave a positive review. For those of you that have, you are helping others to find the podcast. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase, Christian History Podcast, as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page, so that it's easier to find later. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and don't miss any. Thanks for listening and have a great week.